In this week's episode, we're going to talk about how you can build a killer portfolio. I remember when I was trying to get our first job in advertising, and it is it was grueling. Um, what it involves is you submit your portfolio and people go through it. And if they think it's good enough, they call you in for a chat. And if they think you're okay, they quite often uh, will send you out again to say, okay, it's okay, but come back in two weeks with sort of like six new campaigns. And a campaign is three executions. So it's quite a lot of work, 18 pieces of creative in two weeks while you're also working at a place. And then if you feel they feel that you're in good enough, you'll be put on a wait list. And then if an opportunity arises, you might get called in. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, and it's it's painful. And I certainly, as you know, if anyone who knows my story, we started from scratch. Uh, we learned as we went and I slowly ditched all of my kind of graphic design background and focused purely on sort of basically drawing up sketches uh, with a marker pen and putting it in an A3 black leather portfolio. Now, we were going along and we were having our portfolio critiqued and, you know, slowly improving. I mean, there's it's a hard sort of industry to break into. There's a lot of skills you need to learn. Um, but we were improving. You know, we're making a lot of uh, we're asking to have our book handed in. They call it a book uh, in a lot of places. And we thought, OK, great. So soon we're going to be getting some success. Uh, but we just got to be patient, keep working hard. And I remember we sort of heard again, yeah, unfortunately, that it's not quite good enough, but keep going. And so we went to pick up the portfolio and I arrived at the agency and I said I'm here to collect my portfolio and they said okay it's just in the room back there and I went behind the reception and opened the door and uh, I saw a room full of black identical portfolios and I just thought have they even even looked at this because I think that was where I saw it being put in in the first place and so what it made you realize was why the hell would we stand out? And I know that the way that people work, recommendation is always first. And it's like any job, if you're having to apply for a job with your CV or like by the time it's on a recruiter's website, that's because several people have turned it down. So you're never in a good place because you're at the end of the chain. And I thought, okay, well, this isn't going to work. So we decided to think about what could we do to make a better impression, to stand out, so that when a person came to those room of those 20 black identical portfolios, they'd want to pick ours up instead of just the note, the clearest or the nearest one. So this is radical. We changed it to a green portfolio. I know that, that will blow your mind, but that was the first step. But we did the second thing, which I think was far more interesting and it made us stand out. And that's we put our portfolio in an old antique suitcase. Um, we managed to find an old antique suitcase and we managed to kind of get some foam and some cloth and we cut a special little like a, like in a ring box where the portfolio would slot beautifully in. And at the bottom of the portfolio, there was a groove for where we included a book of ideas. And this was a book of madness that didn't really make sense, that wasn't really advertising, but it was sort of creative ideas and thoughts and stupid stuff like that. Anyway, so what happened was um, when we would turn up to places and they'd say, have you got your portfolio? We would hand over the suitcase and the suitcase would get put in the room. And you can imagine that we got a lot more callback straight away. Our work hadn't really improved, but our presentation of our work certainly had. 
and we stood out because obviously when you go in the room and you see well I'm going to pick up clearly pick up the suitcase because I'm just fascinated as to what the hell's in there and when they're in there quite often the work was okay but what was in the little black book of ideas kind of showed that we had the potential to do some quite interesting stuff and this led to kind of more opportunities more in-depth conversations you know being recommended more and eventually we did get our job pretty soon after that there's definitely an uptick there's lots of things clearly we were improving getting more experience but it really taught us the value of first impressions and getting people's attention and standing out for the right reasons because if you can convince them that you know you look the part and you you, you're good what they're going to pick you and then when they check your workout if that's good as well they're going to hire you and that's the kind of killer combination and standing out over time and doing something to impress who we were trying to you know get taken in by was really important and in fact if I remember correctly we got to the stage where although we've been told you need a portfolio and it has to be sort of a3 and it has to show three ideas per you know campaign blah 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 there was a lady who was at one I think she was at mother one of the best agencies in the world and she said your work is okay but your black book is great and I want more of that and she had actually just given a job to someone who didn't even have a portfolio they had like a little box of stuff which was full of ideas and trinkets and handmade stuff and and she said like it's this industry is all about creative thinking I'm less but I don't want someone who is basically going to just churn out this kind of fairly safe familiar advertising like everyone else I want creative thinking that I can mold into something which is going to create you know great work at this company and you realize in that moment you're like oh god so I was totally tricked into doing the conventional route and it actually by applying convention and following the rules it it actually held us back. So a lot of this is kind of the reason why our portfolio was failing is because we were doing what we thought was the industry standard and what would impress our peers or what our peers were doing. And this happens now on people's websites. You get extremely talented people building websites that I think are there to impress their peers but actually the people you want to be impressing are your clients because they're the people who are going to be hiring you and I know that it's really tempting to have a really beautiful elegant site or even you go the other way and you have a cool agency with a kind of potentially wanky site that doesn't make any sense but the difference is that cool agency has a reputation that precedes it so nobody expects to sort of go on there and not know who they are so they can get away with it but actually you want to be building portfolios which showcase what you do beautifully but they showcase it to the clients who are going to hire you and pay you for your expertise and if you don't do this and you end up kind of ending you know creating kind of more sort of uh, minimalist gallery type sort of websites that look great and your peers think are cool and you like it because you're a designer you're into that but your clients are left confused going yeah I mean the pictures are nice but well what does he actually do and who does he do it for you're going to fail and you're not going to get clients. And that is the mistake. As soon as we adjusted our portfolio with the people in mind that we wanted to impress, things changed and we broke away from convention. And that's what I'm saying that you need to do. If you want to build a killer portfolio, we need to break from convention. We need to make sure we stop creating these beautiful sites that look good but don't actually convert because it's going to hold us back. So the key is to sort of look at your portfolio not as a vanity project to show how brilliant you are, but instead talk to clients about what they're looking for and show how you can help them and how you've done it successfully in the past. And one of the biggest ways of doing this, which is the first bit, which is always wrong, is 
you have work and it's just a gallery of work. So it, it doesn't show me anything or it doesn't explain the work. And if we all know when we've been to a real life gallery and you see something weird and modern and abstract and there's no explanation, it's always labelled as like, well, anyone could have done that. My kids could have done that. It's rubbish. Now, the thing that changes your opinion, or at least you can begin to uh, appreciate that there's some sort of effort has gone into it, is when you read the accompanying caption that tells you what the artist was trying to achieve. And even if you don't like it, you can respect the effort. And that's how we need to think here. There's no point building um, a beautiful gallery of work that doesn't explain what the brief was or what the problem is you're trying to overcome or how you helped your client. People also think, well, if I show all the before and after sketches, that will help. And again, yes, but clients don't really care about that. Your peers might. And I made this mistake all the time. I would break down like color codes and explain the design and the logo. And yeah, because I'm into that and my friends are into that and we all get off on that. But a client's like, yeah, 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 I just want to, you know, that's nice. I like it. But I want to see some testimonials. I want to see kind of like what was the impact. Show me something where it's kind of like, because I've got money I want to spend with you. But unless I can see that I'm going to get a return on that investment, I'm not going to give it to you. So show me something that is going to, make me think that you're worth spending money on. And that's the big problem. So we need to go from the first step with all portfolio websites when it comes to showing your work is that you need to move away from a gallery site and move into a case study instead. Now, a lot of the work will remain similar. You're still going to post the work, but the whole thing has to be curated to tell a story of the project and show the success of the work. So when it comes to writing a good case study, as I said, it is a sort of structure that takes people from all the way from what happened when the client approached you to how the client is, had their life transformed by your work now, and they're really happy about it. And there is a basic structure that I'll run you through now. And every time you do a case study, follow this structure and you won't go far wrong, I promise you. And it will make much more compelling reading for the people who are going to give us money, which is our clients. And that's why you have a website, because you need to have work and expertise and information that is going to build their trust and confidence in you and make them want to contact you when you can't be around to explain what you do. The first part of a case study is going to be the introduction. In this, you're going to outline how you became involved in the project. Very simple, it might be that they approached you with a problem, uh, that you saw something or an opportunity, or you reached out to them to solve whatever it is. The introduction is just setting things up, explaining who the client was, how you came into contact, and what they do. Very, very simple. The next bit is going to be the challenge. So the challenge was what the client is facing in their business. So that's going to be the bit that they they wanted to fix, but they couldn't do it on their own. And so they were looking for your expertise. So this, again, is really important because it sets the tone for kind of, okay, this is what the brief is based around. This is what the problem is. We have to fix this problem. So how are we going to do it? That's going to be the next question. But it's so important that you outline that. And if you are going into detail, you want to describe the challenge in the way that other clients who are similar are going to be able to relate to it. They're going to go, yeah, we're having the same challenge. So they're automatically going to be compelled to read a little bit more because they want to know how did you overcome this challenge? So if you talk about that challenge in a way that clients can relate to and you talk about a challenge that they can relate to, so be quite specific and even consider having the client word it for you so they say it in a way that is very kind of like in their own language, 
that's going to be massive. So the first bit is the challenge. Then we're going to offer the insight. Now, the insight is the unique opportunity that you've discovered or that the research brought about or you've found out somehow that was going to be a way in. So this is how the, this is the challenge they're having. The insight that we were given was this, which actually was really interesting because this is how we were going to build our strategy around that insight because we believe that insight gave us a way to solve the challenge. So this is where you would go into a little bit of depth and this would be kind of research based and what you found out and what was happening. And after discussing, you know, the problem with the clients and their customers, we were able to spot an opportunity. And this opportunity or insight is going to be what you're going to build all of your strategy around and all of the work around is solving this problem using that insight. Next up is going to be the solution. So now we knew what the opportunity or the insight was. This was our solution for making the most of that to solve the client's problem. And this is where you can actually begin to talk about your work. And and now you've put it into a context where it's much more relevant and easy to understand. And now people get, okay, so because of all this, you've told me the story of the problem, the insight, the research, what you're thinking is. Now I see that the solution makes sense. I get it now. That sounds like a good idea. So now you can talk about the work. If you want to showcase maybe some early sketches to make it feel more kind of handcrafted, um, this is where you'd break down the work. As I said before, the solution is usually going to be the final solution. Um, not, I mean, you can do kind of uh, overview brand guidelines if you like that. There's no nothing wrong with that. But clients who are, or potential clients who are reading the case study are less bothered about color codes than you probably are. So I would say limit the sort of technical jargon as much as possible just showcase off the development of the designs the design with all the different colors some kind of photos and mock-ups all that kind of stuff so where you do it this way this is the balance because the solution is explaining the solution that you're going to do showing the development of that solution and then the activation which is the next section is going to be how it's been brought to life so where you've developed the brand identity or whatever you've done you've shown it kind of flat 2d This is kind of internal communication that could be taken from brand guidelines. Now we're going to activate that and put it out in the real world and bring it to life through 3D mock-ups or real-life photos of the billboards or the posters or the T-shirts or whatever you did. This is where you're going to show that activation. So because part of it is we can have a great idea and we can execute it beautifully, but if we don't get it seen by anyone and we don't get out there, then we're never going to solve the problem. And it's always creative and distribution. You know this if you do Facebook ads, it's like I can design a great Facebook ad, but if I don't put any money into media spend, no one's going to see it. So what's the point? So this activation is how you're going to bring it to life. It's always good to use uh, a variety of relevant mock-ups that, again, the client will understand. So if they are, let's say, a restaurant, then your mock-ups should be restaurant mock-ups, not like sporting mock-ups or like industrial city mock-ups or cosmetic bottle mock-ups it's less relevant. You need to be able to show the client, what well, the potential client, sorry, who's reading this, what your work looks like in situ so they can begin to imagine like, wow, if we had work that looked that great as well, that'd look amazing and get them excited. So use photos. And if you're using photos, commission a photographer to go and take photos of the work in situ um, and combine it and pad it out with various mock-ups to show the flexibility of the design and the wide range of uses. So the photographer might take beautiful shots of the interior of the restaurant because you worked on the graphics on the interior and then a couple of close-ups of the menus and then the people in the restaurant. 
and then you might also then combine kind of more static mock-ups of menus of stationery of t-shirts where you've got a bit more control over what they look like after activation is going to be the impact and this is where the client really gets interested because it can all look amazing but again did it actually work you know up until now i believe it worked but i need some sort of uh, something to back up what you're saying so the impact is usually going to be the metrics of success and the financial value of that work and the impact of that work to the client now in the beginning of the project you would have set success metrics so the client might have said in order for this project to be successful i want to increase revenue by 10 percent, or i want to get 10,000 more followers in a year there are going to be different metrics attributed to different projects, but in the eyes of the client, that's the target that they've set for this project to be a success. So this is where, when you show the impact, this is where these metrics are going to come into play because you're going to show an increase in web traffic, increase in followers, increase in revenue, whatever that is going to be, that's where you're going to show it. So it's like you can talk about how great it is, but now you're going to go, look, don't believe me, I've got stats to back it up. And that's where you're going to showcase these statistics. And the reason why they're relevant is if they are aligned with what the client wanted to achieve, it ties everything together because the challenge is always going to be, this is the problem, this is what they hope to achieve. We achieved it and then we finished the case study with the client's response, which is going to be a specific testimonial about the impact of your work and how what it feels like to overcome the challenge how great it was to work with you to in, you know, uncover that insight, how proud they are of the work when they see it out in the real world and how thrilled they are that the work is actually having a financially beneficial effect to their business. And that's all going to be wrapped up in a very specific testimonial. And then at the end, there's always going to be a call to action of like, if you'd like to work with us, let's book a call. So that's how you study and structure, sorry, a case study. And if you do all of your projects in that storyline, then what you're doing is you're guiding potential clients through the project and they will live vicariously through the eyes of the existing project and they will get an insight of what it's like to work with you. And the more that you can convince them that working with you is amazing, the easier it is to convert them. Next up is going to be testimonials. Now we talked about it just a minute ago when we talked about what comes at the end of the case study. It's massively important to choose powerful people to give you very, very specific testimonials because the credibility of that person will enhance the testimonial itself and their kind of endorsement of you will elevate people's perception of you not only do we have to consider who is giving us testimonials but also what's the content so generic testimonials that are just about how nice you are and how great you are and how we love the work are fine but they're boring and what clients are looking for is specific testimonials that talk about specific problems they're having or emotional and financial benefits that they've had since working with you. So don't do generic. Don't accept testimonials that talk about, oh, they work really hard. They even work weekends and evenings to get it done. Because by doing that, yes, it sounds complimentary on the surface, but we don't want clients who are thinking of working to us to learn, oh, they'll, they'll work evenings and weekends if need be, because we don't want to set up ourselves up for that expectation. So any testimonial that could have a negative effect, we need to get rid of or we need to change. Now, the way we do this to make it super easy is we write the testimonials ourselves. Now, I know that sounds crazy and you're going to be like, that's a con. Ideally, you would have your client write the testimonial. That's always the best way, generally, 
but I've always found clients are busy. Particularly if this is a client you haven't spoken to in a while and you're trying to get a testimonial because you forgot, they're going to be, you know, it's going to be hard for them to find the time to do it, to think about what to say, to relive the experience. So make it easy for them. Write down the testimonial for them, send it to them and say, please feel free to edit this in any way or change it if you're not happy. But if you are happy and you're okay for us to post it, just sign it off and say yes, reply to this email and we'll leave you alone. And that's what they'll do. So make it super easy to get those testimonials and then curate what you're saying by writing them yourself. Also, we want to move into any awards, accreditations or qualifications you might have. So the reason why these are helpful is because a bit like the testimonial, the credibility of the award that you've received is a shorthand way of telling people that you're qualified and you're successful. So we want to talk about that because this is how humans react. Because uh, like I said, if you're if when I did football coaching, I would say, yeah, I got my UEFA B license through the London FA. So the fact that I've got one UEFA B license, which is hard to get, and I did it through the London FA, one of the best in the world, that automatically gives them a shorthand to like, okay, so he's done a lot of work with the London FA. He's good enough to pass the B license. So therefore, he must be a really good quality coach. That, you know, a bit same with like a Michelin star in a restaurant. All of this is shorthand. So we want to make sure that any industry awards that we go in for are going to do that for us. And it all varies and it's not always easy because to win the top ones is hard and it's very expensive. But you can always start a little bit lower. So if I think about like hospitality, they used to have these Taste of the West awards in when I was back in Cornwall. And those were kind of, you'd want a Michelin star. And then underneath you had like the Michelin rosette. And then you had recommended to get in the guide. Then you had like Taste of the West awards. And there was a sliding scale of kind of excellent and like TripAdvisor and all that. Always go for the easy one. So like TripAdvisor five-star rating was one we went for. Uh, you know, any that, that anything like that sort of in the Michelin guide was another one we went for because some of these you can like actually get paid to be involved. Like so Alistair Sordays was a guide that you would pay to be in and then they'd send you a sticker going recommended by Sordays. They would always review you. It wasn't, it wasn't like a scam, but it meant that if I had a bit of money set aside, I could pay to be in these uh, guidebooks and and you know be seen to be kind of well respected and doing well, and then I could in you know manage and make sure that we had consistency in our delivery and and what we did so that we could then get further up and be represented and in better places that you can't pay to be in you know so we can enter awards we want a Michelin star we're in the Lonely Planet all these kind of things they all help and all of them are industry specific so the first thing to do is kind of go work out what awards matter to your clients enter those awards try and get associated in some way register become a member of all these things there's ways around it because all these awards companies need to make money so there are ways of becoming affiliated with these companies so that you can put their badge on your website and all this does is just a shorthand to make them understand okay so this guy's good it's the same with accreditations or qualifications if there are any courses that you can be doing, so like I know, like Marty Newmar does a, a brand strategy course and you can become a level C brand strategist, for example. So that's a fairly easy qualification to get. And if you get it, you can put it on your website and say, look, I'm this level. And all of those little things, in the same way you would put logos of clients you've worked with, 
they all act as a shorthand to demonstrating your kind of caliber within the industry and they're really important so if you can do that that's great i would say uh with the logos one of my bugbears is people claiming they work for massive brands when the reality is they were like a freelancer who was brought in and who happened to work on a small part of a campaign for that massive brand that massive brand didn't seek them out and i think that when you see say a freelancer's work and you've got clients like disney and all these other things on there you have to question like well if disney sought you out why haven't you got that more work like that on your portfolio it, it, there's always like a bit of smoke and mirrors with that and i think that there's a balance um ideally you would get high quality clients on your own and be honest about it i understand why people do it but i think that the risk is if people begin to suspect you're not being 100% honest with those logos they might begin to question everything else on your website and it can actually undermine your reputation so just be aware of that next you also need to capture their email so this is where we begin to think about okay we have a portfolio but we maybe need to think a bit like an e-commerce business and and maybe turn a home page not into a sales page as such but certainly we want if anyone goes on there and is impressed with our work we want them to kind of submit an email in some form so for me i'm not a fan of like uh, email forms that the client has to fill out i find Whenever I fill them out, I never really get a reply. I'm not filled with much confidence. But if I'm able to download a guide or a lead magnet, certainly that's something I'll do. And by doing this and kind of creating some sort of downloadable guide, that, again, reinforces your understanding of that industry, your expertise. And that means that when someone downloads that guide and they've given you their email, which they value, but in return, you've over-delivered and produced this beautiful guide with videos and everything. They're like, wow, he could have charged me for this. This is amazing. They're already realizing that, okay, this person can be trusted to over-deliver on what they want. So I'm feeling a lot more confident and comfortable buying from them. So you create the lead magnet, make it amazing, and then they're on your mailing list, which allows you to carry on the conversation much more kind of submissively and sort of passively passive is a better word but you know after the experience and what this allows you to do is if you email them every couple of weeks you just stay on their mind and you kind of go oh yeah well you know and they might find oh yeah he'd be perfect for a job I've just received his email it was really great I might forward it to someone this all comes from capturing it right at the beginning and those who have email lists will tell you how valuable they are Um, so it's definitely worth making time to create a valuable lead magnet that will Um, they'll want to download and then you keep it on your website and build that email list. As I said a minute ago, um, when it comes to contacting you, I am not a fan of those sort of forms that you fill out. I think a booking calendar like Calendly is much better where people can actually schedule a time to talk to you that works for them because this way we sort of close the loop. And so they actually go, well, at the moment, I've just read a great case study. I'm kind of excited. I'd love to work with him. So I'm going to book a time to do it. And what that means is that they're much more engaged. They get it to suit them. And you'll pick up bookings without having to do the backwards and forth of, I'd like to take a booking. Okay, I'll send a reply email. When would you like to go? Let me see when you're available. Oh, I'm busy that day. What can you do? All of that back and forth is eliminated. They book the email because obviously you set the availability. And now you're kind of not closing, but bringing in very, very warm leads to people who want to talk to you who are interested and that's how it's going to be done. So again, you're, you're thinking like a business. The website is a tool to capture leads and you're doing this both through your lead magnet and your booking calendar. Overall, um, when it comes to doing your website like this, 
Uh, I would always really recommend bringing in the expertise of other people to enhance it and make it better. One of the big things I really struggle with is uh, like writing copy, designing things, because I'm, I'm too attached emotionally and I overthink it. So when I have done this, it's been so much easier and now I do it all the time. If I need copy written, I, buy, I write, you know, bring a copywriter in. If I need photography done, I hire a photographer. If I want SEO done, I go to an SEO friend I know. All of this means that they're giving me the best sort of return on investment because I know it's going to be high quality because I'm paying for it. And it's going to be far better than what I could do. So I would absolutely, that's the first thing, bring in other people to elevate the quality of your own site and detach you from the work. And then consider doing collaborations or dream projects or uh, projects that go above and beyond what you do for your existing clients that are going to appeal to your ideal client. Because you want a, 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 an opportunity to showcase your broad range of skills without the constraints of the client brief. And so you can do this either by working outside of the client brief or just creating your own briefs. As an example, I always felt like fictional movie businesses are going to be really quite interesting to do. So if I was looking at like what is a well-known movie and a well-known business within that movie, like so if you said, I'm going to rebrand McDowell's from Coming to America or I'm going to rebrand Doc Brown's business cards from Back to the Future, whatever it might be, I might rebrand the um, Central Perk from Friends. I found that because people know the original brand and then you've done a rebrand of it, there's this sort of fun element where like people will give you complete creative control they know it's a spec project you're not trying to hide anything and claim it's real but it's good fun you get to you know flex your creative muscles and it's you know it's pop culture which is always really really shareable so like i said you want to make sure that you're um bringing other expertise to do all of this for you to make sure it's done consider skill swaps and whatever and then do spec projects to go sit aside your real projects to elevate uh, what you do and get clients really excited and that to be honest is how you're going to build a, um, a killer portfolio that's actually going to serve you as a tool to grow your business to recap I would say you have to remember who it's for and as a clue it's not you it's not your peers it's solely for clients so remember that at all times and curate it so that it's going to really appeal to them think of it like a tool to grow your business so be professional tie up any loose ends and make sure that there are ways for people to contact you and more importantly ways for you to capture their information so you can continue the conversation another time and then blend style and substance by making it beautiful as you would do but also functional by serving a purpose and using case studies to demonstrate your expertise and show your caliber and your quality and that's it so as always i hope you found that useful if you have any questions you can email me thad at thadeducation.com Please join the Facebook group because I'm in there. I'll be taking questions and trying to help you with various articles and content. And if you found this useful, I'd love for you to share it with someone who would also benefit from hearing it. I'm trying to grow the podcast. I want to help as many people as possible. So all I can say is thank you for listening. Have a great day and I'll catch you soon.